Hello, dear friends, and welcome to The Natural High, which is, of course, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. I am very excited to introduce my very special guest to you today. But before I do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about my current situation. As some of you know, we decided to try and escape the clutches of COVID by leaving San Francisco a few months ago. And we moved north, about 22 miles north, about a 45-minute drive across the Golden Gate Bridge and up into Marin County to the beautiful Stinson Beach. It's a small beach community with amazing locals. They've been so friendly to us. Um, And there is a gorgeous beach, Stinson Beach and Bellinas, just a little bit further down. The white golden sands, uh, incredible ocean. And it's a real surfing haven as well because the waves are pretty big. So you've got the Pacific Ocean on one side and behind us is uh, Mount Tamalpay Regional Reserve. Huge, glorious green hills which you can drive up and the views up there are breathtaking uh the wildlife is amazing i see deers every day who just roam around the neighborhoods and uh, feel free and safe to do so we have got whales and sharks and dolphins and seals there are a lot of coyotes there's some mountain lions thankfully i haven't seen any of those and some amazing trails to take my brilliant doggy woggy riffraff on he's in his element he does get the odd tick up here despite the treatments we try to give him but that's a small price to pay i suppose as long as you're vigilant um he's so happy that he doesn't have to hear the scary noises of industry and commercialism from the city of san francisco and the reason you can hear the ambient noise in the background is because i am currently out on my morning walk he's with the little champion we're on a beautiful meadow adjacent to the oh my god he nearly caught a vole Thankfully, he's a terrible hunter, but I just saw the vole that he was hunting. He's, he's just so happy, it's incredible. Uh, I can talk ad infinitum about how amazing dogs are. Uh, I do believe that they have the key to happiness in the way that they live their lives in such a simple and present way. They live in the now, and it's something that we should all be trying to do, but um, he just brings me so much happiness. Uh, and so yeah, I'm out here with him right now, uh, speaking to you. So we've been extremely happy here. There is, in terms of wildlife also, I should mention the California condor, which I believe that's what I'm seeing every day. They are thriving in this neck of the woods. They nearly went extinct a few years ago, but thanks to good conservation, they are now thriving in number again, and they are incredible creatures. They have to be seen to be believed. They are huge, a massive wingspan. Uh, they're imperious and elegant creatures who do look a little bit intimidating until you get used to them. And then you realize they're just very much at one with nature. And uh, it's just a glorious situation. It's, I mentioned it to you because it's something that you should definitely put on the bucket list if you're ever going to be coming to Northern California, which is, as a whole is beautiful, but this is one particularly beautiful enclave of, of Northern California, Stinson Beach. Uh, It's our last week here. We're moving to Carmel-by-the-Sea next week. So by the time I do my next podcast, you will probably be with me down there, which is on the central coast of California. So on to my guest for the week. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing some research, general research, to find out who I might interview next on The Natural High. And 
I think it was pure serendipity that I came across a video, an online video of an old school friend, Benjamin Earl. He was by far the smartest kid in my year at school. He was incredibly intelligent and um, so we weren't particularly close because I was just, you know, a bit of a numpty, sleepwalking my way through school, hands in pockets, scruffy hair, not really wanting to put my head above the parapet. Um, he, by contrast, I believe he used to come to school with a briefcase, which set him apart instantly. But it befitted him, a man of his brilliance, because he was very much an academic then, and he has gone on to become a man of the cloth, very much embedded in the Catholic Church. He lives and works in Rome now, and I don't know too much about his current life. It's been 30 years since we spoke, but I am fascinated to hear about his journey, his story, and the many pearls of wisdom that I am sure he can impart for us about his life and life in general. If I can't learn from this man, then I am definitely asking the wrong questions. I have to say I'm a little bit apprehensive because of that chasm of intelligence. He was an incredibly smart guy then, so after 30 years more of academia and deep learning, I can only imagine how brilliant he is now. So, definite trepidation about the interview, but yeah, um, real excitement as well because I feel that I have so much to learn uh, with the questions I'm going to ask him. So. Without further ado, let's get on with it. If you want to find out more about Ben and reach out to him indeed, you can do so by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Ben Earl. That's B-E-N-E-A-R-L. And just a quick reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club. And if you enjoy the show, I'd be hugely grateful if you could leave a quick review on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast. Enjoy the show. The Natural High. There we are. You can see me. Oh, and you'd like to see me, I should, you'd like to see my ugly mug, I guess. Well, I'm going to talk to you. I mean, even if this is audio. Here we go. You can say hello to me too. Hello, sir. Oh, hello. How are you? Do you remember the face? Well, the face was a little bit different then. Yeah, I'm sure. Less hairy, less suits. Well, well, yes. <laughs> there you go. I had a strong suspicion that you'd be absolutely on time for our meeting. Thank you so much. Try. We try. I mean, my only worry was that the um, the time difference was going to be miscalculated because I know you you change the clocks, I think, a week earlier than we do here, so. That's right, yeah. And um, I want to say thank you so much for, for making the time to speak to me, because I'm sure you have a particularly he hectic schedule, which we will delve into. And also, it's been a sort of nearly 30-year hiatus in our acquaintance. <laughs> well, yes, your time, time does fly, it's true. Um, I, I was, I mean, in, in thinking about some of the questions, I was thinking back to some experiences from then, and uh, uh, yes, it's a long time. It feels like a yeah. different world to me, almost like a dream. Um, well, I think if any of us, had, anyone had told us 30, however many years ago, that we'd be, first of all, in the middle of a pandemic of this kind, um, uh, but secondly, that we'd be doing these instant video chats and that everybody would be doing it, 
Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I, I remember um, uh, uh, th there was one day. Remember Nigel Shaw? Uh, who, yes, um, I do. Who was, uh, um, and there was one day he came into school very proud with a blue LED. Sorry, I'm going to take one of these out because I sound very strange <laughs> to myself, so I've still got one in. Um, he came into school with a blue LED, uh, which he paid, he was, you know, into electronics and he was, a, um, he was very proud that he paid something like £10 to get a blue LED. Why do I mention that? Because you know the screens that we're sitting in front of have um, have um, thousands of, of, right. of blue yeah. LEDs sitting in them. I do have a vague recollection of that. I have a vague recollection. It's so funny. You've just sort of awoken a dormant memory. So, Nigel Shaw and his famous LED. Uh, but firstly, I'd love you to set the scene for me. Where are you right now? Um, but is this is this part of the, the, yes. the what you're recording at that? Okay. <laughs> I normally just I just jump straight in to try and imbue as much authenticity as possible. Well, I don't know if Nigel Shaw will be listening to this. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> doubtful, <laughs> doubtful. Um, so I'm sitting in my office um, in Rome, overlooking the the Tiber. In fact, if I squint out of my window behind the camera. Um, I can just about see the dome of St. Peter's. Um, I, I would have the window open, but you can't, you wouldn't be able to see me if I had the window open because um, it's, it's um, early evening, the sun is setting and, uh, and it would uh, um, blind the camera. Um, I have to say it is one of my favourite cities. So tell me what you like about Rome and some of the places you particularly like to frequent. What, what brings you joy in Rome? Uh, Joy in Rome. Um, oh, pizza! Oh, I, I mean, Italy. If you're going to be in Italy, you may as well have um, have have pizza. No, it, it, it uh, sort of slightly seriously. Um, if one's enjoying an evening with friends, going out for pizza and beer is great. I mean, Italian beer isn't great, but um, but pizza and beer is. Uh, and the is, service, okay. the service at these pizzerias is fantastic. To my, with, yeah. in my experience, and to my knowledge, you get a very friendly friendly service and you know you Rome well we'll see what happens after the pandemic um obviously um right at the moment it's in a slightly strange place um, um yeah. but you know with tens of thousands of um trattorie ristoranti pizzerie um there there's um some of them have a very local feel some of them would be catering more to um, to tourists, there were even one or two actually run by um, orders of nuns, who, who which wow. gives you a slightly different um, um, feel to the place. Sure. Um, so, so that that that's great. But it would be strange to say Rome. Um, the thing you you'd think most of Rome is pizza. Well, firstly, you'd really want to go to Naples for that. Um, okay. Although Rome, the Rome has a Rome has a certain style of it. But just those. Um, those places which are crucial to our history. I mean, school we would hear about uh, the uh, you know, the Colosseum, um, the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus is just down the hill from us here. Um, uh, I, I almost don't think about um, um, don't think twice about walking past it. Um, the, the Colosseum right. is two metro stops. Um, again, um, closed at the moment, but um, but. Um, uh, all being well, not forever. Um, sure. 
What is the status in Italy right now? How are things going? How are your freedoms still seriously restricted? Uh, well, it de depends what you're what you're doing. Um, for most of Italy at the moment, or about half of Italy, Rome has just changed category in the last um, the last twenty four hours. Um, we're split between um, an orange zone and a red zone. The red zone is basically um, stay at home. Um, you have to have a good reason for leaving the house, which includes going to work, um, but schools are closed. Um, uh, most shops are closed. Rome has just gone into the orange zone, which means um, schools are open, although only for a couple of days before Easter. Um, most shops are now open again in Rome, um, uh, but uh, still restrictions on restaurants, obviously no major public gatherings, no crowds, um, and we're getting used to a, a, a new normal. But hoping, hoping that, um, uh, uh, well, maybe a bit of warmer weather, but also uh, more particularly uh, progress with vaccination, which is slow in Italy, but it's, right. it's moving ahead. Yeah, the UK seems um, um, to be leading the field in in that it, area at the moment. It, 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 it does, and indeed the the, the numbers um, seem to bear it out. At the moment, the infections in Italy are around about twenty thousand a day, with out of a population of sixty million. Wow. Um, okay. Still it, high. It, it's still fairly high, but it's not going up. It's it's gradually coming down, and all being well, that will continue to come down as the vaccination um, uh, program moves forward. But, it was just such a horror story in Italy, wasn't it? Because I remember with the first wave, none of us really knew how serious, how um, how dangerous, how you know how bad how badly this would affect all of us. And um, in Italy, we saw this this horrible first wave. And nobody knew how to control it, and I think we it, all wondered it was whether it was in, end of days. Sorry, go on. Well, it was different in different parts of Italy. Sure, um, of course. Um, yeah. Here in Rome, it wasn't so bad right at the beginning, but certainly in the north. Um, they really did get to the point that hospitals were overwhelmed, um, that there weren't the ventilators to put people on, um, and, and a new disease which really nobody had any idea how to treat. Mm. After a year on, we're in a, a different place. I mean, I'm not the expert to talk about um, COVID treatment, but certainly um, we know a lot more about how to treat it. Um, obviously, the testing has come on um, um, a huge way. Um, so even though the, uh, the, the infection rate, at least the detected infection rate, seems much higher now than it was um, a year ago during that first lockdown, um, they, the hospitals are not quite so overwhelmed. That said, we've still got a lot of people dying every day and um, nobody thinks that's a good thing. So we're keen to see the, the way out of it. Um, but you can't keep everything completely locked up for a whole year because um, yeah. the world has to work. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very fragile balance right now. Um, how's it affected you? How do you feel about COVID? Has it made you feel depressed? Do you still feel as optimistic as ever? I mean, and do you think we've learned anything from it? Do you think we will implement uh, the learnings that we've had from COVID in terms of our treatment of the planet, our treatment of our relationship with animals and our relationship with each other? Um, as a member of a religious order, um, not a completely enclosed religious order, it has to be said, um, a religious order that um, is founded 
to go out there, but that has a contemplative aspect um, at its core, um, and also therefore having the advantage of living in a rather large building and a household of about 30 brothers. Um, the, the experience of lockdown was probably relatively mild compared to the experience that some people had. I mean, either people living completely on their own or people living with a family, but just in a very small flat. I mean, we, I just have to look out of my window and see um, uh, some of the, the, the buildings in which people, people live. Um, and in, in Rome, people live in apartments, in, in tall buildings. I'm not talking about skyscrapers, but you know, they might be four or five stories and they might have a reasonable sized apartment in there, but they'd be lucky to get even a balcony. They certainly wouldn't have a garden. And some people were, were, were living shut in there for months on end. Um, whereas we have cloisters and gardens and um, uh, uh, some sense of I felt a, um, a certain um, luxury there, but without going out. Um, I remember on Easter Sunday um, last year, so uh, coming up to um, a year ago, um, and we were still in full lockdown um, um, although people were by that stage allowed to go out and get some exercise. So I remember um, we, had, we had the door of the church open, and, um, but people weren't allowed to come in, but they could, they could see the church open, but, um, but not come in. And we had um, a, a candle um, lit at the door of the church and people were coming and, and looking and um, uh, there was a little, a little um, boy with his father, I presume his father, and you know, from a distance, I was able to wave and thought to myself, "This is this is the first contact I've actually had with a, a human being outside of the uh, uh, the the, uh, the priory um, for by that stage it would have been a month, I suppose, um, and it was a, a wave at a, a very um, a safe distance. Of course, right. no masks at that stage. Masks were still in short supply, so we could at least um, we could at least see the smile on people's faces, which yeah. was different. Yeah. But how will it? Um, how will it affect things? Well, it's it's difficult to see the future. Um, we've experienced this new normal. Um, some of that is going to be here to stay. Um, I don't think um, Zoom is going in, away anytime soon um, under that name or, or, or other names. Um, one sees various governments introducing plans like a, a right to work at home and such like things. I, I read this morning that Ireland um, is introducing a programme to encourage people to move to the countryside and to work remotely, even after um, um, COVID. So that will be one thing that, that certainly changes. And that may well be a good thing. Just to think, economically speaking, um, I'm here at the international headquarters of an international order, and if we want to organize um, a meeting of a modest sized international commission, we're talking about a five figure sum, um, in whether that's euros or dollars or, or sterling. And obviously we can have a video conference for a fraction of the environmental impact mm. and a fraction of the cost. You know, yep. we could even buy everyone on the commission a new computer and we'd be spending less um, because because you know, a, a transatlantic or an intercontinental plane ticket costs a lot of money. Mm. Um, so 
I, I think we're now going to think twice before saying, oh, let's have an um, um, international meeting and say, well, can we do this another way? Yeah. Um, and even I think in, in, in day-to-day life, I mean, I live in a different country to my family um, and even without COVID, um, home visits could only happen once or twice a year at most. Right. Um, but, you know, the occasional phone call home has been replaced by a regular video chat because now everybody knows how to do it. And I don't think I'll be allowed to get away with returning to an occasional phone call. I think that's, that's <laughs> going to be something that, uh, that stays there. But I would also hope that the mere fact of a pandemic that's touched the lives of almost everyone on the planet um, will leave an awareness that, um, well, no man is an island, as John Donne, the poet says, um, that no nation, that no people is an island, um, that we're all in this together. And I think it would be marvelous if a sense of global fraternity, of global friendship can endure despite all this. I have a certain fear that memories may prove short, that we may forget very quickly that we're all in this together, but perhaps I have some hope. Um, but I think it's a lovely I, thought, it's a lovely idea. But, you know, I, I look forward to being able to um, shake somebody's hands or give them a hug um, or see their face. Um, um, I mean, through video chat, we can see each other's faces, but we can't see each other's faces actually face to face at the moment. And that's going to continue to be the case for quite a while. We lose something for sure. And especially for you, somebody who lives your life in service to others, that must be really difficult for you um, to see so many people suffering and not and to literally not be able to do anything about it. Well, yes, not, I think not face to um, face. I think as, as protocols have been worked out, we worked out ways of working um, um, here in Italy um, for the first lockdown um, churches were closed completely so so even for the the the, the ordinary simple things of, of seeing people in churches we, we couldn't do that we were able to carry on as a religious community as a single household ourselves and we were able to say to people look we're, we're here we're praying for you but you can't come in and that's goes against all our instincts the instinct to care for the sick. Um, um, before coming to Rome, um, one of the things I did was was cover for um, a hospital chaplain, emergency cover, so people who were were dying. And you know, you could get a call in the middle of the night saying, "Yes, somebody's dying. Can you can you come? Can you anoint them? Can you pray with them? Can you try and give some sort of comfort?" And of course, that's been precisely the sort of thing that has been impossible in the, the, the COVID situation. Um, uh, and uh, I have the, the, the greatest admiration for those who've been, well, for everybody who's been working in the hospitals, yeah. um, but, um, but hospital chaplains is the, the, the role that I can relate to who in this time have been going in. And when they have been allowed in, and uh, again, in, in Italy, they've generally found ways of doing it, but of course, it's been in full um, uh, personal protective equipment. Um, um, it's it's not very um, it's not very sacramental. In some sense, it's it's more 
it, it seems more virtual even than, than Zoom because you know there's a human being there somewhere under those layers of, 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 of plastic and visors and masks and goggles and gloves and all that. But um, it's it, it's difficult to see to see that they're there. And you know, for Christianity, um, central to Christianity is the notion of incarnation that that God became um, a human being and that it's that, that, that the whole of the human nature, body, soul and spirit, that's to be made holy. Um, but all of that is being covered up either by virtualization and everything being wow. digital or literally covered up because you can't even see that there's a human being there. Yeah. Um, it, it looks decidedly like an alien because mm. that's, that, that's what we have to wear um, um, to, get, to get around. So. I hope that we will um, uh, be able to 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 move out of that. Uh, yeah, I think in... we're all becoming we're all becoming experts at reading the eyes now, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. And so... indeed, even the computers are reading the eyes now. I, I see that they're <laughs> improving the facial recognition technology. Right. Um, to, to work with masks. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. Uh, I've read every morsel that I can about you over the last uh, week and um, it's just so impressive. Uh, depending where, what I read, I read about you being a Dominican friar, a canon lawyer, an acclaimed preacher. Um, so just to clarify, what is your official title now? And what does your day-to-day look like? Um, I my, my job, if you like, my, the office I hold is as Procurator General of the Order of Preachers. Um, the Order of Preachers, also known as the Dominican Friars, um, after our founder, um, St. Dominic. Mm-hmm. Um, as the name Order of Preachers suggests, um, um, what we are about, our raison d'etre, if you like, um, is, is preaching. Um, backed up, we'd like to hope, with, a, um, with an intelligent um, and rigorous um, uh, study um, behind that and a, and a, and a life of contemplation. But my role as Procurator General um, is, the, is to be the member of the General Council of the Order, um, if you like, the, the Cabinet of the Master of the Order, um, who deals with, um, well, two aspects. The, the relationships with the Holy See, with the, the Vatican, as it would commonly be called. So if we need to ask permissions or favours or dispensations or, or, or anything like that, and um, that's that's my role, a sort of ambassador to the to the Vatican for the order, um, but also, in a more general sense, the canonical matters, the matters that touch on the Church's law, that um, a general curia, a, a central government of a religious order such as ours, um, has to deal with. Now, we're about five and a half thousand friars um, worldwide. Um, but we also have responsibility for two or three thousand um, enclosed nuns, contemplative nuns. And the order has around about, um, off the top of my head, 150,000 um, lay people who are associated with it. Um, and uh, a number, about 150 um, separate groups of Dominican apostolic sisters, active sisters. So there's the enclosed nuns, um, and then there are the active sisters. The active sisters um, are uh, juridically autonomous, so we don't have any any, any role in, in governance over that, but we have a bond of fraternity uh, with them. 
So you might imagine that that number of people will generate um, a reasonable level of legal canonical questions which um, keep the procurator general busy on a day-to-day basis. Right, yeah, sure. I'm sure there's some difficult situations for you to deal with. Was the Order of the Breaches set up with a specific remit? Um, can you tell me something about the genesis and history of it? I know that it's, it's a really old institute, some 800 years old or something. Yes, just over 800 years old. We're celebrating um, this year the 800th anniversary of the death of St Dominic, our founder, um, in 1221. So that will be um, in August, um, the actual day, but we're in a sort of a jubilee year from January of this year to January of next year. Of course, we'd planned it um, some time ago and it's uh, not turning out quite as we planned, but um, um, that's the world today, isn't it? Um, So Dominic um, was, um, born in Caluega, um in Spain, um, and uh, he he studied in Palencia as uh, as a student. Was very concerned of the for the plight and the suffering, particularly of hostages who'd been taken okay. in those days. There's a story of him selling his books. I mean, books were very expensive things in those days um, to to ransom um, 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 prisoners. Um, he became um, a canon of the cathedral at Osma, and it was while he was traveling with his bishop um, in the south of France that he came across um, a group um, of people called the Cathars or the Albigensians, um, who were who were dualists in the sense that they believe, believed um, in well in a good god and a bad god. Okay. The good God responsible for um, all the, the nice spiritual things and the bad God responsible for um, nasty, horrible material things. And in the view of the Albigensians, you have to escape from the nasty material things and ascend to the, the nice spiritual things. Still um, holds true today, right? Well, there are, I don't think there are many who go around by that name, but right. um, there are certainly... In, in, a, in a more broad sense, it would be known as, as Gnosticism. Okay. Um, um, and yes, there are Gnostics um, around to this day. I, I mentioned I mentioned earlier from a Christian point of view, where um, God became a human being, um, where the one God, the one creator, um, actually takes on um, uh, human flesh and blood. Um, the, the idea that, 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 f- that flesh is bad um, that everything material is bad um, and everything spiritual should, should be should be sort of detached from the the material world. Um, it is it, it, it's, it's a notion which is which is um, uh, I hesitate to say anathema, um, but um, it's certainly contrary to a Christian understanding of uh, of how the world is and how God relates to the world. And encountering these people. Uh, Dominic, well, he, in some sense, he realized what the problem was. And p- part of the problem was that um, the, the rulers, and this includes the rulers in the church, were living, frankly, quite opulent lives, which were not, incompa- not compatible um, with the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that what was necessary from a Christian point of view was people who could preach the, the Christian truth, the Christian gospel, but also live it. Lead by example. Live as 
live as um, poor friars. Mm. Um, um, yes, proclaiming that that God created the world, and because God created the world to be good, the world is good. But that doesn't mean that um, that I should be hoarding all those good things for me and leaving the poor people round about um, 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 abandoned. Um, so he saw this need um, uh, and he gathered around, was able to gather around himself a small band of brothers, you might say, and um, step by step um, uh, eventually received uh, approval from the Pope for this new enterprise and then sent out his, his brothers two by two to different places to to Paris, to Bologna, and, and uh, would be the two major places and, and various other places um, where they founded communities, um, priories, and began that work. And, and it, it, it mushroomed, really. It, it, it grew extremely quickly um, um, to become an, an, an international order. Um, so at its, at its height in England, in England alone, um, we were um, 50 priories and 2,000 friars um, in, in, in medieval times within a century or two of St. Dominic's death. Um, so a, 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 an immense um, explosion of, of uh, a new idea. He wasn't, of course, the only one having similar ideas. He was a contemporary with St. Francis of Assisi, who's probably a little bit more famous because um, mm. you know, he talks to animals and that sort of thing. Um, and that that um, that makes him popular. But, um, <laughs> but one of the things Dominic was very keen on, I mentioned he'd been a student in Palencia himself, but he was very keen to send his brothers to the universities, um, to, to Paris and Bologna, as I mentioned. We can't be absolutely certain, but it seems to have been Dominic's uh, desire that when the friars came to England, um, that they should go to Oxford. Um, so they, they, they arrived, they, they stopped briefly in Canterbury, they stopped briefly in London, but it was in Oxford that they set up um, their first priory um, in, um, in 1221. Um, in fact, the, the, the same month that Dominic himself died. Um, so we've always had that close link with the universities. Indeed, you might say that we, we sort of had our, our adolescence as an order at this, the same sort of time that the European universities um, came into being. Um, and the idea that those who are going to preach the Christian gospel should have that rigorous um, formation, that, uh, that careful study, that time of preparation um, was considered very important then and continues to be now so that we, are, we continue to be involved in, uh, in universities um, in many parts of the world, including in Paris, in Bologna, and indeed um, in Oxford. Which mm -hmm. well, touches my own story. story yes. Yeah, which I want to definitely delve into further. Just to give some context, we both went to secondary school um, in Canterbury in the southeast mm -hmm. of England, a grammar school called Simon Langton School for Boys, which we both attended from 11 to 18. I remember at school, you were pretty much the complete opposite to me. You were a quite brilliant student. And I, on the other hand, just didn't enjoy learning at that stage. It didn't ignite me. I was sort of sleep involuntarily sleepwalking through school and just sort of trying to keep my head down, basically, rather than be asked questions by my teachers um, I didn't find great happiness at secondary school academically and I also found it a bit a bit tribal and a bit brutal at times it's the worst the worst sort of 
elements of man seemed to come out at that age at our school. What were your impressions of school? How did it shape you and how did it set you on your current path? Were you always religious or was there a, a sort of later calling? I'm effectively well, asking I... you to bridge a 30-year gap for me. <laughs> oh, uh, I'd I start by going back a little bit further than, than secondary school. Um, I, I, I think... Um, if, if I'm going to start a, a life story, I will go back to the time I was six, seven, eight, um, which I suppose for, for many people is some of their earliest memories, or at least some of the earliest memories of actually being able to reflect about things. And traditionally, we talk about seven as being the, the age of reason. Um, that doesn't mean that all seven-year-olds are reasonable, and I'm sure um, I, I, I wasn't. But but it's the age at which you start to be able to to think a little bit more um, uh, reflectively. And I'd lost my maternal grandfather, my mother's father, um, to cancer when I was six. And then a couple of years later, when I was eight, um, uh, we lost my grandmother. Um, they were both in their early 60s, which seemed ancient to me at the time. Um, although I have to say, um, as we get closer, um, inexorably, um, doesn't seem quite so old um, now. Um, and about the same time, I learned that I'd lost an uncle to suicide. I learned that my paternal grandfather had died in an industrial accident when my father was, um, was still a boy. So round about that time of coming to the age of reason, around about that age of seven, I experienced loss myself. And I wonder, this is, this is the benefit of hindsight, of course, I wonder that since as a seven-year-old, six, seven, eight-year-old, I didn't have many responsibilities myself, I was free to experience other people experiencing loss and the burdens that it brings. So my young inquiring mind um, inevitably wanted to know, wanted to know why, um, wanted to make sense of this. Um, my uh, uh, my parents always um, used to reflect that when I was when I was as young at bedtime, um, I would I would be allowed a question before before going to um, before going to sleep. Um, and the question would very often begin with some phrase like, why exactly? And um, <laughs> it, it, it might be a, a, a question of, um, of, uh, of what we might call ethics or religion, or it might um, perhaps more commonly be a question of science. Um, and, um, Which may not have an answer my, or an obvious one anyway. Uh, maybe not. My mother would often say, mm, ask your father. And my father would often say, oh, ask your mother. Um, but so I had this... Um, this inquiring mind, wanted to, wanting to make sense of things and wanting to make sense to a certain extent of those experiences. And it was compounded a little bit by the, the thoughtfulness and foresight of my grandmother. Now, my grandmother, my mother's um, mother, um, was an Irish Catholic nurse who'd come to England at the time of the Second World War. Um, where she met my grandfather and, uh, and the rest is history. And I suppose it's to her through my mother 
that I owe, well, I owe my Irish nationality, which is proving extremely useful um, post-Brexit um, <laughs> for somebody living in, in, in the European Union. Right. Um, but more importantly, and more to the point, um, a Catholic upbringing. And um, as you probably know, one of the important rites of passage for Catholic children is their first Holy Communion, the first time they receive the body and blood of Christ under the sacramental signs of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. I say bread and wine, I don't think we were receiving that sign of wine at that time, but um, 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 things change. Yeah. And traditionally, um, family and friends will give cards and small pious gifts. And so in itself, it shouldn't have been a surprise to receive a, a handwritten card from my grandmother and a small, simple wooden carving of the Virgin and Child, and Mary and Jesus. Um, I say it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it, it was something of surprise and um, because she died several months previously. Having prepared the card, having prepared the gift and entrusting it to my mother. So there was a certain poignancy when, as this eight-year-old, I opened the present and found the card in my grandmother's handwriting, um, wishing me every congratulations on the day and include enclosing um, a gift. Um, but she died four or five months previously. I can't remember. Um, the card I don't have anymore, sadly. Um, I, I do still have the carving, which I thought I would bring I would bring with me. It normally sits above my bed, but um, the, the little carving, nothing, nothing hugely special. Um, uh, a simple carving, simple colours. Um, it bears a single Latin word um, above it, um, restituunto. Um, when I was eight, I had no idea what restituunto uh, meant. Um, it would be a few decades um, before I could uh, study uh, Latin. Um, but it means I thought you'd they are restored. I thought you'd have asked your parents at bedtime. It would have been a classic. Oh, I could have asked my parents at bedtime. I, I, I don't think my, my parents were very were very uh, keen on uh, on the Latin either. But um, uh, restituunto is the word. Um, okay. It means they are restored. They, they are brought back. Um, so I later discovered, um, which was, which if I'd realized it at the time would have been rather poignant. Um, um, they are restored, they are brought back as the gift from my grandmother who'd died several months earlier. Anyway, it was, it was a tender age to start pondering those mysteries of life and death. Um, but I don't think there's any point pretending to kids that these things aren't real. Um, my uh, my mother would say that, that some of her friends would um, uh, criticize her for, for example, for having taken us as kids to the funeral of, um, well, of both her parents, of, of my grandparents. Um, but, but she said, well, but it's real. People live, people die, and there's no point pretending they don't. And mm. they're going to have to learn it sooner or later. So, um, um, so we did, I have to say, with, with, with support and with, with hugs and with love. Um, um, so as I said, the if you like, if you want the spiritual journey, it starts a few years um, earlier than when we first met. Um, but I suppose it was a few years later when I was 12 or 13 and we had met 
and around the time of confirmation when a young Catholic is strengthened by anointing for the Christian life and mission, when perhaps with a little bit more earnest, I started to pray and contemplate about the direction of my life and where God might take it. Now, you, you mentioned your impression of, of, of me at school. I, I don't know how much of that was apparent. Um, I think I was probably something of a, a science, maths, IT nerd. Another um, very interesting part of your journey. Yes, well, um, but, and, and, you know, this was, this was a time before geeks were cool. It's a time before <laughs> nerds took over the world. Um, um, I, I do remember that um, Mr. Moffat, Mr. Moffat, um, who at that time was a young English teacher, um, though he's now the head teacher of the school, in fact. Oh, wow. You, oh, you didn't know that. No, he's I now do. the head teacher. Oh. Fantastic. He was um, something of a maverick he, back then, wasn't he? He was something of a maverick. Um, um, I don't think I want to repeat some of the stories, just in case some of the current pupils discover um, yeah. um, th this, th th this, this, uh, uh, this recording. <laughs> um, and and uh, uh, but I, I will, I will give, um, I will give an innocent story um, um, uh, about him. Um, as I said, I was science, maths, IT, that's that sort of thing, um, and I remember that. He gave me full marks for um, an English literature essay um, for GCSE. So if this is going to um, uh, an American audience, that would be high school, freshman, sophomore year. And it was an essay on W.B. Yeats's poem, uh, The Second Coming, um, which I think, I, I think the reason I got such a ridiculously high mark um, was because basically I had some idea about the Christian imagery at play and maybe a, may, maybe throwing in a spa, splash of um, centrifugal and centripetal forces because the poem opens um, with a falcon, um, of the bird, the falcon turning and turning on a widening gyre. Um, now, you know, full marks on a maths exam was not unheard of on an extremely lucky day, but nobody gets full marks from English essay because it's more subjective, um, I guess. Uh, well, yes, I don't. I, I, to this day, I still don't understand how you mark English essays. Right. And what, what, what constitutes a, <laughs> a, a, a good? You know, I mean, I can tell if the spelling is correct and if the grammar is correct. But what yeah. makes something a good story? I mean, I can read a story and say I, 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 I enjoyed that story, but but can I tell you how many marks out of forty it's supposed to get? No, right. No. Yeah. I, 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 I can't. I totally see. So, what so you're I did. I did. I did have. I, I was I was a science um, nerd at school, but I, I did I did have um, some moments um, in in other directions. But nevertheless, sixth form, um, which would be the junior and senior year of high school in the US, that was um, specialization in maths and science, and that was followed by a BA in maths at St John's College in Oxford, and then a master's in the computing laboratory um, in Oxford. Now, I mentioned that, you know, even from the age of 12 or 13, I'd fairly earnestly been, been praying, if you like, um, about the direction um, my life might take. And God rarely answers our prayers, in my experience, with some sort of miraculous intervention, you know, voices coming from on high or visions of angels or the like. And indeed, um, 
if people start to tell me that they're hearing voices, um, normally um, it's the psychiatrist that they should be talking to and not the <laughs> priest. Um, rather, the answers come more subtly, we would say more providentially, with the situations and the people that God puts in our path. And often it takes the benefit of hindsight to see that he's answered our prayers, or rather that by lifting up our mind and heart to God in prayer, we've been conformed to his will. So in my case, um, um, St. John's College um, in Oxford, where I spent four happy years as a student, is just across the road from Blackfriars, right. um, the priory of the Order of Preachers. Um, I know this is going out in audio only, so um, so the, the listeners won't um, have the perplexity that perhaps you have, because you can see that I'm here dressed in a white habit, um, and why that the Dominican priory in Oxford might be called Blackfriars. Um, there is, in fact, a, a black cloak that goes over it, um, uh, uh, which is what we would have been seen wearing out and about sure. um, in medieval England, um, where we first picked up that um, nickname. Um, but I'm sitting in Rome at the end of March, and it's far too hot here um, to be wearing thick woolen black cloaks. Um, um, so this is the, this white is in fact the ordinary habit that we're in most of the time. Anyway, I digress. Um, um, colourfully, I found myself colourful digressions. I, yeah, I well, really colourless. It's black and white, really. <laughs> good point. Good um, point. Touche. Um, so I found myself for four years, in fact, just over the road um, um, from the Dominican Priory in Oxford. Although it took me quite some time to get inside, but I did meet um, a number of the friars um, about in Oxford and indeed in in other places. And I discovered that they were generally seriously bright and thoughtful men, living the Christian gospel in a radical way, you know, poverty, chastity, obedience, and all that, and dedicated to communicating the truth. As I mentioned right from the beginning, the universities had been important, and as in the 13th century, so in what was still then the 20th century, um, uh, we wanted to be present in universities where we could study seriously, both study philosophy, theology, if you like, the subjects that are our core interests, but also engaging with others so that you might perhaps meet a young student of mathematics or uh, from the computing laboratory um, who might be interested to, to talk to you. In fact, I discovered that quite a number of the brothers in the order had studied maths or science um, and they weren't all um, uh, arts and humanities people by any stretch of the imagination. Um, do you think that in that case that um, religion and spirituality compelled you? Uh, is it something that sort of happened to you rather than you having to go and find it? I don't subscribe to the idea that every one of us has a set path and and you know we just have to um um you know if you like get ourselves on the right right tracks on the right rails and follow the path um i i think a proper discernment 
um, a proper contemplation of, of where we are going actually requires decisions. We have to look at ourselves. We have to look at the possibilities at, uh, in front of us. Um, we have to see where is the best fit. And that's a rational exercise. It's not simply expecting God to provide us an answer. As I mentioned, providence, I think, is part of that. What we find in front of us is going to be part of that. But I mean, from, from the stage I talk about, having met the order, uh, it proceeded by degrees, really. Um, I met these men. I thought, what they're doing is impressive. What they're doing is good. What they're doing um, is needed. Um, and then looking at myself and saying, well, um, do I have um, the talents for this? Can I stand up in front of people and, and talk about um, um, the faith? Um, am, I, am I up to, to this sort of study? Because you know, I've been going down very much a, a science and maths um, track up, up to that point in my life. And little by little, talking to them, talking to God, as I said, lifting up heart and mind to God in prayer, um, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I do. Um, uh, maybe I should talk to them some more. Um, so I began to actually um, um, visit the priory, go to the liturgy um, in the church, um, hear more of what they had to say and continuing to think, this is, this, is, this is good. Maybe I could. And you get eventually you get to the point of saying, well, okay, let's give it a go. Let's see what they say if I say to them, what do you think? Could I, could I do this? Um, and, well, what they said is, um, yes, um, let's give it a try. Um, and I thought, well, if at some point you don't take the risk and ask, um, you never know. You have to take certain risks in life. You have to make decisions because um, if you don't make decisions, you just, you, well, you're wandering aimlessly. Hmm. So, after finishing my master's, um, I arrived, I mean, when I say after finishing my master's, I mean, I think it was within a couple of days after handing in my, my thesis at the end of the master's degree. Um, uh, I arrived in our novitiate, which at that time was in Edinburgh, and the novice master opened the door, and um, I remember the first words he said to me, I mean, I'd met him before, of course, but uh, his first words to me when he opened the door were, make yourself at home because you are. Nice. And I think in the years that followed, um, well, there have been times of doubt. There have been times of, of challenge over the years of formation. Um, there's at least four years from beginning the novitiate, from going through that door that opened to making our um, final vows, our solemn profession until death. And then another few years um, up to ordination as a priest. Um, but I continue to feel at home um, in the life of the order as a community of brothers and at home in our work of, of preaching the truth. Although it has to be said in, in, in my current role, um, the, the, work of, the work of preaching is something I get to do from time to time. Um, sadly, right at the moment, most of my time is sat behind um, a desk at a computer. But, you know, that won't last forever, um, I hope. You, um, you, you talk about um, truth and obviously, you know, 
everybody has their own truth. I'm wondering, you know, you, you studied uh, science, you studied maths and computer science at university, so you've just got such an incredible grounding in science. During all your, your years of study and practice, um, a contemplation of rumination, as a canon lawyer, as, as well as all of the other positions that you've held, have there been moments of serious cognitive dissonance? So times when your religious beliefs have really contradicted your sense of reason and logic and, and really made you agonise. Uh, are there still some question marks for you? And how do you sort of overcome those? Contradiction, no. Um, I think... Um... Well, you, 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 I might take issue with one of the things you said uh, uh, early on there, Please. that um, that you said everybody has their their truth. Mm. I mean, it's certainly true that everybody has um, things they believe, and the things that different people believe are are, are not necessarily um, compatible. Um, I certainly from the from a from. Like, Catholic point of view and from a personal point of view as, as, as well, um, we wouldn't say that there are, are different truths. Um, we certainly wouldn't want to say, and I wouldn't want to say that um, there's sort of scientific truth and there's um, religious truth. Um, and um, we can sort of um, switch from one mode to, to another. Yeah. Um, no. For, we would want to say that there is there is one truth, which is why so many of the um, uh, great scientists have been religious people. Um, sometimes people forget that um, the, the 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 first person who came up with the Big Bang theory—I don't mean the sitcom, I mean the the, the, the theory about the beginning of the universe—was um, a Catholic priest, um, um, and indeed. Um, some of the, the scientists, some of the great scientists um, at the time rejected it because, well, they, they, they said, well, it's just a, a Catholic trying to say that the world was created out of nothing. You know, the creation ex nihilo is one of the, the great, um, those great doctrines of creation. Um, and, um, and the Big Bang theory sounds very much like um, creation ex nihilo. Um, but then, of course, people did their science, they did their experiments, and they discovered that actually, no, well, what we're observing does seem to be consistent with um, um, with a Big Bang type origin of, um, of, of the universe. And, and certainly, uh, Georges Lemaitre was the name, he was a, a Belgian priest, um, uh, didn't see the slightest um, a problem with, uh, with, with positing an origin of the, of the universe, or perhaps I'd better say an origin of the observable universe um, that goes back those billions of years um, um, with uh, with a Catholic faith, he didn't see any any contradiction um, between them, and certainly I, I wouldn't see contradiction um, between uh, um, an empirical science and and a, a, a Christian belief. They certainly are, are talking about different orders of things. Um, don't we're not going to be able to point to God in the universe because a, a Christian understanding of what God is, of what creation is, of what sustaining the universe in being is, doesn't have God in the universe. Um, God is the context in which the universe exists. God is the one who brings the whole universe into being. He's not, he's not in it. So you're not going to be able through science to, to point to God and say, look, um, um, there he is. Um, 
what you can do through science is, is look at the beauty of the universe and say, you know, is, isn't that a marvelous um, uh, thing that we have? Um, and, and with Christian faith, um, say, well, uh, and we should be thankful, we should praise, we should love um, um, the one who brought all this um, into being, um, even if you can't point to him in right. the universe, um, because we're not we're not pagans. We don't believe in uh, in in, uh, in in superhero type gods who, um, uh, who 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 manifest themselves. I mean, I, I'm living in Rome, and of course the, the the ruins of the pagan temples are all around. Indeed, the, the priory I'm sitting in is uh, is sometimes suggested it's built on top of. Um, older, well, everything in Rome is built on top of older things. Many churches are built on top of um, um, ancient temples, uh, and there's those those traces of, of of the Roman gods. But but a, but a Christian notion, a Judeo-Christian notion of God, um, is 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 not like that. Yeah. I suppose, okay, so just to sort of drill down a little bit then, in your position, for example, are you expected to fully subscribe to all of the edicts of the Bible, literally, in its entirety? Or do you feel, is there um, some room for interpretation? How much wiggle room are you allowed in your beliefs while remaining a good Christian? I mean, I suppose I think about, you know, modern uh, the sort of modernity and you know evolution of, of belief, human belief, things like, you know, hot potatoes, for example, like abortion, gay marriage, women in leadership, those sorts of things. I mean, if yeah, how, how literally do you have to subscribe and, and yeah, uh, adhere to the, the, the teachings of the Bible? Certainly in the, in the, uh, the, the traditional understanding of the scriptures, the all of the senses of scriptures, because they have spiritual senses as well as a literal sense, but the spiritual senses would flow from um, a literal sense. But you do sometimes have to stop and think, what actually is the literal sense that the author is trying to um, communicate here? Um, and let me give you a classic example. Um, the, the first two chapters of, of Genesis, um, Genesis chapter one gives you the, the creation of the world um, in six days um, in, a, in a certain order. Um, um, but you have some things that you might say scientifically are, are, are absurdities. That, you, know, you have day and night before you, you have the, 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 the well, evening comes and morning comes before, before the sun gets created. Um, well, how, how can you have evening and morning with no sun? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and then you get to the second chapter of Genesis and um, you have another story of creation. And that's the, the, the well-known one of Adam and Eve. Um, and um, the order of creation is different there. You, in Genesis chapter one, you have, um, um, you might say more of an evolutionary em emergence that um, various forms of life get created. And at the very end, um, um, uh, humanity gets created, male and female. Whereas in Genesis chapter two, you have Adam created um, and then um, all the various animals, but none of them are quite good enough. Um, and then Eve is created from the rib taken from, from Adam's side. So, you know, you have two different accounts of, of, of creation. Right. And if you think that what the author is trying to do 
is give you a historical record of on day one this happened, on day two this happened as if it were a, um, um, a chronicle of, of, of creation, um, then you would have a problem with that because you know, you're only on page two and it's already full of contradictions. <laughs> But of course, that's not that's not what's being done here. We're, we're being given um, two stories, which through a narrative are presenting um, the nature of of creation um, that God created out of nothing, everything everything that is um, that um, that God created things in a in a certain um, order. I mean, I don't mean sequential order, I mean, with the relations between um, um, what, one another. It's not trying to condense 14 billion years of history and tell us that it all began really 6,000 years ago. Um, uh, that, that's, that's not what the author um, is trying to do at that point. So to say um, that we should take that literally doesn't mean we should take it literalistically, twisting it, if you like, to make it express something which the original author never intended, right. but we should understand it as the author intended it to be, as a, telling us about the relationship between God and his creation, telling us about the relationship in, between God and, and, and human beings. So I take that, that that's if you like the first example you can, you can find in the scriptures. Um, there are there are other things as you go through the old the Old Testament um, where um, again you might say that they're um, they're lived out parallels. For example, you know if God tells the uh, um, uh, the, the people of Israel to 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 slay all the enemies, um, that doesn't mean to say that um, uh, people, certainly not Israel or nobody else for that matter, should go out slaying their enemies all the time because God says so in the Bible, but rather it's through, through the, um, the scriptural narrative is talking about a, a, a total dedication um, uh, unto God in terms, of course, that would have been perhaps familiar to those um, who are hearing these stories um, um, when they were first set down um, by, you know, real um, um, men, usually men, maybe some women in some cases, and certainly there are some very interesting stories of women um, in the scriptures, um, but with, um, with a divine inspiration behind it. Mm. Um, so, so one has to distinguish between a... Yes, a, li a literal reading of scriptures that it, it really does mean what the authors meant it mean meant it to mean, but not with a, a literalistic meaning, which is in fact a twisting of of that meaning um, that that we that we give now to make it um, as if some um, how, would I, how would I put it um, to, to to give uh, to give something that was that was always intended to be a a spiritual theological history. As if it were, um, 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 you know, a, a modern chronicle, yeah, um, right. which it was never intended to be. Sure. So, yes, do I believe what's in the Bible? Um, um, yes. Um, do I believe the world was created um, uh, uh, six thousand years ago, and that the fossils of the dinosaurs were put here um, just as a clever trick by God, so because he's got a sense of humour? Uh, no. Um, uh, um, and I don't 
think that there's anything, uh, any incompatibility. Um, right. And that's where that. the room for interpretation comes, right? I mean, I feel that all the great scriptures contain invaluable fables and life lessons if you allow some room for interpretation and common sense and modernity or, you know, in terms of the time that you're living. Certainly to, under, to understand the scriptures correctly, you have to have an idea of the, um, the, the time in which, they're in which they're living, in which they were first received. One also has to be conscious that we read it, we read them from a particular time and place. Right. And that 21st century Western uh, um, uh, humanity does not have a monopoly on a correct reading of of uh, of timeless texts um so it's not the case that everything that is um a trendy or even generally accepted in certain societies today is necessarily um, um always the case yep and um, we have to we have to recognize that we are conditioned um by our our circumstances i would like to hope that generally speaking, um, humanity has has made progress, um, and that, and in some sense, you, one sees a certain amount of that. That um, uh, in the revulsion that we have at some of the images um, um, of the Old Testament, for example, that um, that, that that can sometimes horrify us, and as, as they should. Um, but um, but we do all. But we do also, when we have problems with text in scripture, we need to recognize that the problem is not always with scripture. Sometimes the problem is, is with us. Very good point. Very good point. I, I would be, um, it would be, um, oh, I'm forgetting the word now. This is the problem of living in Italy. I sometimes forget words in English. Um, it's either I'm getting older or I'm, or I'm, or I'm living in, in Italy too, too long. Um, uh, it would be arrogant of us, was the word I was looking for. It would be arrogant of us to think that um, our worldview is the correct one. And right. Everything that doesn't conform to our worldview um, must therefore be wrong or need correction or need interpretation so it conforms to our worldview. That yeah, lacks, I think that's a big that problem. That's humility. I actually think that's a big problem right now. I'm going to ask you a mind-boggling question, but you, I'm going to ask a mind-bogglingly studied and brilliant man a, a mind-boggling question. In your opinion, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the point of it all? Well, the, the, the traditional um, answer that you'll find in, in, in old Catholic catechisms is that God made us to love him, um, to know him, to love him, um, uh, to serve him in this world and in the next. Um, perhaps if you want an, an image more from a, a, a theological tradition or a spiritual tradition of my, particularly of my own order, um, our own um, theologian, our preeminent theologian of the order is St. Thomas Aquinas, um, who lived um, roughly in the middle of the 13th century. And the image he would present us with, um, it's not totally original to him because there are, there are, uh, it's certainly present in the scriptures, is what he would call the, the beatific vision. That is the vision of God. Um, and that's his image of our, our destination, if you like, um, that what we are called to do is to see God. God supremely beautiful. I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, God um, creating this, this marvelous and beautiful um, universe. Um, 
and with all the beauty that there is in creation, um, one, one well, literally can't begin to comprehend the, um, the beauty of um, the creator. Uh, but ultimately, that would be the call of humanity. That would be the call of, of, of a rational creature um, to be able to share, um, to be able to participate, um, to be able to see um, the beauty um, of, of the creator. That's, that's beautiful. Um, you've, you've used the term share there. Do you still, do you get frustrated at times that we don't seem to share, you know, on a global level that we are still so, there's still so much infighting, competitiveness? I mean, surely Certainly, we should be looking yes. to solve world, global problems together rather than trying to solve them on our own and, you know, competing against each other. Uh Yes, um, uh, I mean, it's not very original to say that. Um, uh, Jesus Christ was, was once asked, um, what are the two great, greatest commandments? I'm sure um, you, you, you've heard this. And you, the first is love God, which, as I said, is, 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 is what God made us for. Um, um, the second was to, to, to love um, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not original. Um, he's quoting the Old Testament there, in fact, as it happens. Um, um, they're not very, they're not notions which are new to Christianity by any stretch of the imagination, but they, they are important ones that, um, that we ought to recognize in our neighbor. Remember, it's, it's love your neighbor as yourself. It's recognizing in your neighbor what, the, what there is in you. And of course, what there is in you is there because God created it. There is a, um, a dignity um, to humanity, which is in each one of us, and which we really must recognize um, in, in others. And when there are failings, when the, the beauty that is creation is defaced, um, it's often because we fail to recognize um, that dignity, that God-given dignity that there is um, in every one of us. Perhaps even in four-month-old daughters, whom I can hear in the background. <laughs> really, you can hear. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's a really important point. I think we need to take responsibility for ourselves rather than pointing fingers, you know, elsewhere. I love the Mother Teresa quote, which is, if you want to change the world, then go home and love your family. Um, another quote that I'm going to throw at you now is Franz Kafka, who said, the meaning of life is that it ends. Do you, um, what happens when we die in your estimations? Can you describe it even? Can you even put it into words? I put it into words, um, No. Um, um, uh, is, is the short answer. I think um, when we don't know something, we should be honest and say that we don't know something. I think it is true that as far as one goes back in human history, there's, there's always been an understanding that this material world of ours, with all that there is about it, including the fact of death, and as I said at the beginning, um, something that um, we, we are sometimes required to contemplate even from an early age. But there's, there seems always to have been some sort of understanding that this, this material world and the fact that life comes to an end is not, in fact, um, all there is. 
And we have all sorts of images from all sorts of different um, spiritual traditions, you know, the shadowy underworld of um, Sheol or Hades. Um, um, you have um, rather more positive images um, in the in the, the scriptures, the, the the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, scriptures of you know, glowing cities in the book of the Apocalypse, um, a wedding feast, um, green pastures, and the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want in pastures green, he leadeth me. But those are images. Um, they're images that, that, that we can understand because we can relate to things glowing, we can relate to cities, we can relate to green pastures. Um, well, some of us can. I, 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 um, I grew up um, next to a sheep farm um, and uh, uh, sometimes, um, uh, sometimes I forget this, sometimes I hear people say, well, nobody really knows these days because everybody lives in cities, so nobody knows what a, what a sheep is like. And, um, um, and when they read the scriptures and all these stories about sheep and lambs and things, well, some of us grew up next to <laughs> next to sheep farms, and uh, um, we, we we know we know what they uh, the, what they look like and what they sound like and what they smell like. And uh, uh, but I, I I digress. They're images. They're images in terms that we can relate to, and perhaps we have to have um, new images for for our own times. But fundamentally, um, uh, that idea that there is something more. Um, is is something which is um, extremely ancient and an and, and instinct. Um, St. Paul um, says in the first letter to the Corinthians that um, we see now in a, well, in a glass darkly is the King James um, Bible translation, which is very poetic, and a glass, a, mi a mirror dimly. Um, um, you have to understand, of course, that in the first century, and for many centuries afterwards, mirrors weren't quite up to modern standards. So it was always a, it was a rather um, pale um, imitation of oneself you saw staring back in the mirror. Um, so yes, so we now see in a mirror dimly, um, but then we will see um, um, face to face. Um, that, uh, that vision of God I was talking about, that vision of um, the beauty of God, um, which, which we hope shines through a little bit um, in, uh, in the world today. I think we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a bit, but, um, but um, we will see it, or at least have the possibility of seeing it in its fullness. We have to recognize the possibility that, you know, we might not be quite ready for that. We might um, not have gone from this life um, ready for that that um, that blessedness of God to to shine through us. There's a there's a marvelous um, um, image. Well, in fact, it's, it's the whole structure of um, a poem by um, John Henry Newman, "The Dream of Gerontius," um, um, uh, set, set, set to set to great music as well. Um, and Gerontius, um, who is the protagonist in this uh, in, in this work. Um, he, 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 he dies and he's carried by his angel before the throne of the throne of God um, and he sees God and, and he's just dazzled um, by the goodness by the beauty and he says I'm not I'm not worthy take, take me away take me away um, and the angel uh, takes him away to be to begin a purification a process of purification to be ready for 
to see God. A bit like when we when we turn the light on in the morning, um, uh, if it's if it's still dark, and uh, uh, and we, we we can't cope, we can't see because we're just dazzled by the brightness of the light. So maybe maybe there'll be a need to get used to that that light which we at the moment are not capable um, of seeing. But as I said, these are images. They're images which give an idea, give a glimpse, give um, a dark reflection of something that we can't possibly express in words or draw in a picture, um, um, but which has been that sense of longing of humanity as far back as, as, as we can trace, expressed in, 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 in different ways. When you preach in the community, are there certain messages that you gravitate towards? I think some of us have um, um, themes that we come back to. Um, in, in the Catholic tradition of preaching, um, the preaching is usually connected with the liturgy. And um, in the liturgical celebrations, there is always a cycle of readings um, from the scriptures. Um, and um, the idea is that over the course of a year or over a course of three years, um, most of the gospels um, get read um, and, uh, and, and a good selection from um, the rest of the Bible. So in some sense, the, 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 the text from which the preaching is, is drawn is, is, um, is, is prescribed. Um, nevertheless, I think um, I had some, one person say that each of us only has a handful of sermons in him and it's just a matter of rehashing it to different ones. I'm not sure. That it, that do you not have revelations? Do you not like, wake up in the middle of the night and have these brainstorms and think, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inspire people this way from now on? It, it's, it's curious. Um, so, you know, inspiration doesn't come to order. Um, um, I, if, if only it did. Um, there are... Sometime, but but at the end of the day, you know, if 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 we are supposed to be preaching somewhere on a particular day on a particular topic, you know, we, we have to do it. We can't we we can't just turn up and say, oh, I, I didn't really think of anything that was very interesting. So, <laughs> so, no. so one has to do something, and 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 sometimes what we'll come up with is 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 fairly um, pedestrian. Um, Fortunately, you know, the church has been around for 2000 years. Um, um, people have been studying the sacred text. So if I can't think of anything um, uh, in interesting to say, somebody else probably has. And um, while of course I wouldn't want to encourage plagiarism or anything like that, um, um, drawing inspiration from what the saints have written, what the, the fathers of the church, the writers in the first century um, um, wrote, um, uh, what various um, authors and church writers down centuries have, have said, um, or indeed sometimes what, um, uh, what uh, our um, confreres said somewhere else um, uh, can, be, can be borrowed and um, used as, as inspiration, of course. I try to, at least for major celebrations, you know, Sundays, um, uh, major feasts, I try to make sure I've read the texts from the liturgy, um, uh, well, I'd like to say a, a week in advance, sometimes it doesn't get to be um, quite as long as that, but at least several days in advance, and that I get to 
think a bit about them, get to sleep on them. Sleeping on them is very important um, because um, um, sometimes, you know, things just fall into place. Um, uh, and usually something comes out okay. by, by the end. But sometimes it can be a lot of hard work and I can be slogging at it for hours and hours. And even if I'm just trying to talk for 10 minutes, um, I can be spending hours and hours at it. Um, other, other times I get one idea and it just flows from beginning to end. So yeah. it, 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 it does depend. It does depend. How big a hurdle has public speaking been for you? Because I know that it's a bugbear of so many people in the modern world. And, and you, I never thought of you as a real extrovert. So was that a big hurdle for you? And, and would you say that um, to, to sort of comfort yourself as a good public speaker, you just have to know your subject really, really well? Certainly, I, I don't think I'd call myself an extrovert um, uh, when uh, we were at school or now. Um, um, uh, and... Um, Quietly contemplative at school. Uh, well, I, I suspect I have spent a number of years uh, accom myself accompanying people who are going through the same journey that I was going through when I was um, a teenager, young young adult. Um, those who are thinking about joining um, our order and. Um, Obviously, one of the questions we ask them, I mean, whether whether it's in a formal interview, because we do have formal interviews, um, or whether it's just in an informal conversation at an earlier stage, is um, why do you want to join the order? I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable um, question. Um, um, and a number of them will say, oh, well, um, you know, I, I want to serve in the church. Um, I want to preach the gospel, but I want to do it I want to be part of a community. And certainly that is one of the great um, strengths of our order of religious life in general, that, um, that's, that we have that, that fraternity with other people. But I do have to say to them and sound a warning note that you, know, you have to realize that um, um, in our order, you will be spending, depending on what, what job you're doing, but certainly in your first your first six, seven, eight years when most of your time is spent studying, you will spend the vast majority of time um, on your own. Um, uh, you, that's not to say you won't see other people. Of course, you'll come together several times a day, you'll eat with others, you'll, you'll pray in the church. Everything that everybody sees, you'll be doing together. But most of the things you do will be things that nobody sees, um, but you and God. And that's um, sitting in your room with books or sitting in the library with books um, um, uh, or, or, or indeed um, on your knees um, uh, um, praying. These are, so you have to be able to cope with your own company, not, not, not sitting there doing nothing, spending your time usefully, but, um, but certainly um, working on your own. And it's something I think many of us, um, many of the, our, us brothers find is if we're visiting family, for example, um, or visiting friends, um, that, um, that we suddenly realize how much silence there is um, in our life. We don't actually think that there's silence. We, um, be, because we, 
we were all creatures. We we're about talking, if you like, um, and we do um, meet each other. Um, but um, when visiting family and friends and you have um, television on all the time or, or you know, four-month daughters who let you know when they need something, uh, we, uh, we are, in a sense, isolated from that. And, and we appreciate the silence or we, we made aware of the silence that was in our life when we um, spend time with others. So, yes, there does have to be a certain sense in which you can thrive on your own company, which, um, at least according to some de definitions, is what um, makes one um, an introvert. Um, there, are, there are various things. I mean, um, preparation, preparation and preparation, um, so that um, you know what you're going to say. Um, uh, one of uh, my confreres who was helping us learn to preach, if you like, if, if, if you can do that, a lot of it's done by, um, by watching other people do it and being corrected from your mistakes. Um, but he said, you know, for the first five years, write down every word. Um, I'm not sure I totally kept that, um, uh, uh, but, but certainly if you begin with a very, very clear idea of what, what you're going to say, and today, well, it's a bit different for me because, of course, most of the time I'm, I'm preaching here in Italy, I'm doing it in Italian, which is not my first language um, or my second language or my third language. Um, though, um, I'm sure I, you're I, a that, consummate speaker of Italian. Um, I'm absolutely well, I, certain. I've, I've been here a good number of years, but it's not, yeah. it's not my native language. And so for, for that reason, um, I certainly want to have a text in front of me. Um, but... I find I don't, even if I have a text in front of me that, that has every word written down, um, I find I don't stick to it. Right. Um, um, I, 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 go off, I go off on tangents, so I throw in a, um, a, a comment to one side. And, you know, and so that's, that's one thing, but preparation, but also remembering that um, it, is a, it is, although it's only one person speaking, it's still in a certain sense, a dialogue. And that's one of the reasons that these that that the these this virtual life that we have to lead um, is is so difficult. Um, I've not actually had the experience of having to preach over um, um, Zoom or something like that because, um, thankfully, at least after the initial period, the churches here in Italy um, have been open, okay. and if people want a live streamed um, sermon in Italian, they can get much better preachers and speakers of Italian than me. But, um, um, but certainly giving talks and presentations, given so much of our, of our life has become virtual, and you can't see the person at the other end, um, uh, it, it, or, or you can't see the people at the other end. But so, so certainly when preaching is realizing that, that you're in a dialogue with, with other people, and, and you do you look at them, um, you try not to look at their faces too much. The, 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 one, of the, one of the tricks they teach you is to look about, about two feet above the top of their heads. But you can still see if people are paying attention or not. Right. And um, one of the most difficult places to preach um, uh, was um, a Durham Cathedral. Um, the same would be true of many large churches. It was just uh, that's, that's uh, the most recent experience that I would, would have. I was in, in Durham um, for four years as chaplain to the university there and as right, parish yeah. priest. 
And one year I was invited to, to preach at the New Year service in wow. the cathedral. Terrifying. Um, well, yes and no. I, I, you'd have to ask others whether it was any good. Um, but um, the thing that was difficult is in a, in, a, in a large church, they were trying to be atmospheric, so the lights were dimmed, but of course there were spotlights on the, the pulpit. Um, and that made it feel like interrogation, you know, that you have the bright lights pointed in your face. Beads and of sweat dropping down the down well, yeah. <laughs> And I, of course I couldn't, because I couldn't see anybody. And you're in that sort of situation and it, it stops being a dialogue. Right. Yeah. Um, you you lose the connection with the people, and you mm. know I can give a discourse, and um, and uh, you know I hope that people are listening and understanding and following, and maybe even are edified by it. But uh, but I can't see them, and it that that dialogue element um, is, is 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 really important. It feels like um, a blessing and a curse, though, in some respects, because, you know, sometimes if people don't respond well to you in a positive way, then you can, well, I find that I can lose even more composure, you know, and become really flustered and start flapping around. If I get a positive response from faces or from, you know, responses, then uh, then I can feel really sort of, you know, empowered by it. But sometimes not being able to see them, especially in a big congregation like that, right, can be, yes, help you well, on your uh, way. Yes. I mean, and then you can make um, adjustments as, as you as you go along, Um or, or, or even, or in extremists, just say, "Oh well, <laughs> I think that's enough for today." Um, <laughs> that there is that, that there is that saying about preaching that if you haven't struck oil within five minutes, stop boring. <laughs> um, Brilliant. And there's ambivalence in that term, boring, right? Uh, yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like to meditate. Uh, and meditation to me means um, being able to separate myself from this constant torrent of thoughts or being aware of how, you know, how much my mind is thinking, how many thoughts are going through my mind at any one stage. Just being aware of that, stepping back and also understanding the importance of the now. And I'm, I wonder how much alignment, how much crossover there is between your prayer and my meditation. Do, uh, does it resonate with you when I talk about those sorts of elements and, and how important is the present to you living in the present? And certainly, there are um, there are there are lots of people, lots of of, of Christians um, who certainly practice techniques of mindfulness, which is um, touching on the the, the, the sort yep. of things you're you're you're, you're talking about. Um, so, so yes, that's that that's that certainly is is it would would be part of of, of our tradition. Um, there's a um, in a sense that the but it's curious in many languages including in italian the, the word for um to pray um, um uh, also means to ask um, uh, um and indeed that was the case even even in english if uh, if you go to shakespeare and you have prithee and uh, and such i i pray you i ask you um, okay yeah um um and in a sense that at a basic level, um, prayer will always involve a recognition that we are dependent on on God. We are dependent on the providence of God, and that it will involve bringing our needs and our desires. Um, not everything we ask for in prayer will be um, things we strictly need, but they 
ought to be things that we um, do, in fact, um, want. And um, in a, you might say in a, in a, in a Dominican tradition or in a tradition particularly from uh, inspired by St. Thomas Aquinas, um, that will be in essence of it is, is asking God for, for what we want. Of course, um, um, what do we want? Um, um, what we want will, I suppose, be, be conditioned by um, um, the here and now. So I think many people do have um, a list of intentions, a list of, a list of things that um, they want to pray for, or that they do pray for, that they, that people have asked them for prayers or for intentions that they, uh, they pray for. Mm. Um, go on, please. Sorry. Please. Uh, but of course, you know, that's not the, um, that's not the, 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 the only part of it. Um, a lot of, a lot of prayer will be praying with a, with a text as that, that great tradition of, of Lectio Divina, where you read a text slowly, prayerfully, uh, several, several times, usually, um, um, understand it and let God speak to you in the text. There are other times where you just sit there and in, let, let God, let God speak to you. Um, so, um, can I teach you to pray? That's, that's a difficult question. Yeah. It's a lifelong pursuit in terms of the nuances yes. of prayer. I think, um, I think I mentioned earlier that the, the the notion of prayer as lifting the heart and mind to God um, that should be the the object of prayer to, to be to be one with Him. Um, I mentioned earlier that's the object of human life as as we understand it, um, and our prayer should be in a certain sense um, um, a foretaste of that, um, an attempt to participate. Attempt is probably the wrong word. Um, an openness to, to to God drawing us up to participate um, in Himself. Right. What's the most difficult part of of living a life in service to the church? What's the most difficult element of your life? And when you look at the world, when you look outwards, what what pains you the most? And and do you feel that you can solve it? Do you think you can do something about it? Um. Well, in some sense, the second half of your question um, answered the first half of the question, um, uh, though I'm sure it's right. not um, unique to the church. Um, the one of the frustrating things is realizing that there are things I can't change. Right. Um, yeah. Whether that be um, in institutional questions of the church itself, or whether it be in um, uh, in the world, um, and uh, and the fact that people don't, sometimes people don't want to don't want to understand um, uh, what what we want to say, um, um, or indeed that, that realizing that um, that we are limited, um, and you talked about Kafka and the, the 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 point of life being it has an end. I wouldn't want to subscribe in, in, entirely to that, but certainly. Um, as we get older, um, we, we learn um, progressively um, how little we know and how little we can do. You know, 
teenagers think they know, they, they know everything. Um, sometimes, okay, that's not fair for, for, all, for all teenagers. But sometimes a teenager uh, behaves as if uh, he or she um, knows everything. But, and as, as time goes, goes by, we learn more and we learn that we know less. And, um, um, and we learn that there, that there is less that we can do. I know in the years that, um, that, that remain to me, I mean, I'm, as far as I know, I'm not dying just yet, but, um, uh, but, but we do not live on this earth forever. And um, uh, I keep acquiring books that I ought to read at some point. Um, particularly my, my role in the curia of the order, the, the international government of the order means I accumulate all sorts of invitations, um, um, brothers and sisters from all over the world who say, oh, you must come to visit us in this place or that place or the other place. Um, and um, I say, that would be lovely. Um, um, I will, um, if, I, if I ever get an excuse, um, I would love to come. Um, but of course I, I know, and they know of course, that, that um, uh, uh, our time is limited, our, our, our capacity is limited. Um, the, um, uh, the, I might add the travel budget of the Procurator General of the Order is also limited. Um, and I can't possibly um, um, uh, take up everybody who invites me to go and visit them uh, because, because they're, they're, there's not the time, uh, there's not the money, um, and um, I can't do everything that, that perhaps I would like to do at some point. And so that, it, takes a certain, it takes a certain humility that I can't do everything I would like to do. I can't change some things I would like to change. Um, I can't change some things which really, really ought to change. I can do, I can do what I can do. I, I'm charged with dealing with, at the moment, um, dealing with canonical matters, canon law matters in the order. I can see that um, justice is done. I can see that people are treated um, fairly in accordance with the law, in accordance with justice, in accordance with fairness. Um, in, 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 in those areas I have responsibility for. And I can do my best to, um, to preach that as a way that people ought to be behaving in all times and in all places. Uh, but I can't make that happen. And sometimes that's, that's frustrating. Um, but, um, but we have to have the humility to accept those things that we, we can't change. Yeah. Um, one of the things that pains me at this point in time so much, especially living in America, not so much with this administration, though there is, of course, still residual problems, is just in the last four years in America, it's just been a situation where people aren't really prepared to listen to what the other side has to say, the other side, you know, it's it's more a question of uh, here listening to somebody's opinion and then just shouting them down with their own opinion. I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with a lady called Tara Brock. I'm not. Uh, I will send you a, a link. Um, she, I mean, it's going to go onto your endless list of things to do. <laughs> but um, she is a wonderful spiritual teacher. And she, one of the latest podcasts that she made was about deep listening and about how we, can't, we can listen better. Uh, a lot of the time, she says, people aren't really listening. What they're doing in, in that process of listening is they're waiting. They're waiting to give their own opinion. So I find that listening is 
ever more important to me in my life in terms of however I, much I agree or I disagree, there are always new bits of information I can find if I actually just lean into the conversation with an open-mindedness to change, to be changed. Yes. Um, uh, I think, well, one of the... Um, our, our order is one which has acquired over the centuries many mottos. One of them um, is, is Veritas, truth. Um, we're not the only institution in the world that has adopted the motto Veritas, um, but, um, but we're probably one of the older ones um, um, that has. Um, and the search for truth is, is, is age old. It's, uh, it, it's as, as old, as, old as, as humanity. But sometimes there is a worry, and I think you're right. I think it's a bigger worry um, in the world perhaps today than, than at some other times, that people have forgotten that the truth is something that you have to search for. Um, it's not something that you um, invent. It's not something that you make up. Um, uh, it is something that you search for, which does of course mean that you do have to have a respect for the other. You do have to listen to the other. That doesn't mean to say everybody you listen to will necessarily have the truth. You have to have a certain um, uh, discrimination in the positive sense of discrimination um, um, about um, what it is that you hear. Um, uh, but yes, it, it, searching for the truth takes work. It takes hard work, it takes um, um, years, um, it takes um, collaboration, again, in the positive sense of the word, um, with, uh, with, with others, um, because things are, are, are very complicated in the world. Um, I, we're all at the moment um, um, looking forward to getting vaccines, um, uh, but that's, um, a task which has involved um, many, many thousands of people, um, not, not just in the last um, uh, a year, but uh, well, just more over a year, um, but they were building on the work of many people um, before them who need to collaborate with the, with the humility. And in the, in the empirical sciences, obviously you have an idea, you test it, and you accept that many of the ideas you test won't work. Um, and that's okay. Um, but it's part of what it is to, 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 to search for the truth. Which means that when one sees uh, people who don't engage or don't want to engage or who want to um, simply pr present their own ideas as uncontrovertible um, facts, um, with, without that humility um, to, to accept the possibility that you might be wrong or that your ideas might not work, um, that's, that's frustrating, um, to put it mildly. Hmm. And um, yes, we've, we've seen um, um, some of the consequences of that. And, you know, an, an absence of um, a commitment to truth is really something that sits behind pretty much all of the problems that we ever have. I mean, we talked a little while ago about the, uh, the texts at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Um, and uh, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, 
you have that that image of the fall with the serpent in the garden and um, and the, the 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 fruit the forbidden fruit it all starts with a lie it all starts with a serpent saying to to eve um you know you can you can be like gods if you if you if you do this if you do what uh, if you if you disobey god you can be um, um like gods and it's 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 a lie it's an it's an untruth um, and the, the wars that go on in the world usually begin with some sort of, of lie, some sort of uh, misapprehension. And the injustice is similarly um, a, a lie that um, my, my wants, my, my, my desires, what I, what I want, what I like is more important than the, the rights and the dignity of another person, another group of people. So truth and a commitment to truth and a recognition that a commitment to truth requires hard work and requires humility is, is one of the problems that, um, that the world um, faces and perhaps, perhaps in some places um, more so now um, than at some other moments in history. Mm. I've taken so much of your time already and I'm fascinated by this conversation. I'm going to try and wrap up fairly soon because I know you're <laughs> incredibly a busy guy. Um, I want you to talk to me for a second about somebody who's influenced your life path mostly and why. Now, when I thought about the question, I thought it's a ridiculous question because if I ask who inspires you, then there is an obvious answer. But perhaps I should ask who inspires you, who, uh, somebody who's currently walking the earth. Well, somebody who's currently walking the earth. Yeah, they can be alive or dead, but somebody, you know, a, a, yeah, an earthly being who, who has inspired <laughs> you, your path. Yes, I've had all sorts of people lined up, but most of them are dead. Um, they, they say, call, they say call, call, call no one happy until he's dead. Um, um, <laughs> no, please, please talk about, <laughs> talk about somebody from the past. Talk about somebody from the past. That's absolutely fine with me. I just, you mm. know, I, I want to learn from you about somebody that's, you know, somebody that I can learn from that has inspired you in your life. I was, go I was going to mention, well, I know you, you, um, you said yourself that um, if, you, if you ask somebody like me who inspires you and, and leave it completely open, then there are some um, completely obvious people. Um, um, I mean, Jesus Christ would be the, the most obvious. And if you ask a Dominican friar, he'd have to say, St. Dominic, whom I mentioned a little bit beforehand. Of course. But, but let's, let's leave, um, uh, let's leave the, the obvious ones um, um, to one side. Um, we, as, as part of our life as a community, we have, we pray every day. And in our prayers, we have um, a calendar of saints. And people know about saints' days. And such like, and, uh, and you know, they they are part of the the liturgical celebrations of the church. So we have quite a um, a, a, a body to draw upon there, who are who are given to us to um, to to inspire us. So I wanted to avoid them as well, right. um, because they they were also um, um, all, all obvious. I was going to pick out um, uh, one person in particular. Remembering, I suppose that I suppose this this podcast goes out to um, a US audience. A small um, band of loyal followers. A small band of loyal followers out there. Um, <laughs> I was going to pick out um, uh, a Dominican friar from about five hundred years ago, um, so not quite alive, 
um, in, in, the, in the traditional sense. Um, and this is a, a friar called Francisco de Vitoria, who okay. from the name you might gather is, um, is, a, is a Spanish um, friar. Right. I, I pick him out partly from a personal connection. He's a Dominican friar like mm -hmm. me. Uh, he's a canon lawyer um, uh, like me. You can see the connection building up. He's a, a, a philosopher and theologian. He was an academic, um, and which I've never really described myself as. I've um, I've almost done a doctorate several times, but um, but it's never I never quite got round to it because I've always been asked to do do other things. Um, so I've never really described myself as an academic. He he, he was one. Um, uh, working in, in, in Salamanca. Um, and he lived around the time of the discovery of the Americas. So um, he was born towards the end of the 15th century, lived until the middle of the 16th century, and was dealing with many of the new questions arising from the discovery of the Americas. And in particular, questions relating to human dignity because the, the conquistadores mm -hmm. were finding whole new peoples we hadn't known about, we Europeans, I mean, hadn't known about um, um, before, um, the, the indigenous people, the Native Americans, and um, whatever, whatever um, term you want to use. Um, and, um, and people didn't really know how to relate to that. There had been, of course, we Europeans knew about people in, uh, knew about um, the, the Arabic world, knew about people in Africa, knew about people in the, the, far, the far East because um, they had been reached by other routes, but these were completely mm. new people with civilizations we didn't understand, we didn't know about. Um, and De Vitoria um, was really quite instrumental in, in developing the, the first notions of what would later on come to be called human rights, um, international law, based on um, a dignity of the person. Uh, and you know, concepts that you might think were, were, were strange. I mean, the, the, the rulers at the time were, uh, were often very keen to you know, seize lands, seize slaves, yeah. Um, um, and and uh, people like Vittorio and others were saying, well, you, you, there is a there is a, a certain God-given dignity. Um, um, you can't simply um, um, do this. Um, you can't uh, suppose that you can, that a Western European king can simply decide that the the societies on another continent um, are are not worthy to continue. Mm. Um, and he, he continues to be commemorated um, in, uh, in the United Nations, for example. Um, uh, one of my... Um, How would he have gone about it, just by speaking out about the sort well, of lack of... Well, no, this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is one of the reasons it's an, it, it's, it's an, it, as an inspiring figure is that he was, he was in Spain. He wasn't, he wasn't there, right. but he was, he was an academic, but he was an academic very much looking at what was going on in the world, being in touch with the issues of the world and contemplating it, yeah, thinking about it, um, meditating on it, applying the principles and coming out with um, uh, 
principles of justice, which could then be applied. And of course, that has a certain interplay with the people who are actually in the new world. Um, some of which, some of whom were um, very fervent in their, their preaching and their denunciation of injustices. I'm sorry to say, not always entirely successfully. I think right. people know very well of the injustices that were committed then and in the centuries that follow, and indeed um, in, in, the, in the US, um, over, particularly over the last um, summer, um, some of the events that unfolded, um, and indeed I'm thinking of trials going on as we speak, uh, whether they'll yep. still be going on when this podcast goes out, I don't know, um, uh, that uh, the, the consequences of the injustices of the past um, yeah. very much still with us but mm. you have these people who at the beginning with these new experiences were open to the new experiences and were saying this is this is how we should find this is how um, we should develop principles of justice and this is how we should behave towards and courageous a courageous thing to do because these would have courageous, been popular I mean, ideas at the time right yes. especially in I mean, the established world yeah david toria probably wasn't at risk as as, as much risk as some some of his contemporaries who were actually in the new world and you had um, uh, people like um, Bartolome de las Casas who was a, another Dominican friar who was a bishop in Chiapas um, um, and you know he had he had rioters out, out outside that the house because he was um, he was supporting the rights of uh, of, uh, of of indigenous people against the um, the, uh, the the conquistadores this this Wow. And he just he really did have um, people who were um, uh, yes, at risk because so they were standing up for the rights of the, yeah, of the people. Yeah, exactly. I'm so pleased that you've, you've, you've spoken about that particular situation because it does seem like your order is a particularly peaceful one through history and one has always tried to promote peace as opposed to the more sort of conquistador way of doing things, of you know, having this idea of, well, genocide in the name of, in the name of God. Um, yes, well, I think one of the things that Vittorio would say, and indeed that, that Christianity ought, ought to say is, and, and does say, is there is that, that human dignity, there is that, um, uh, that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, if I, if I can go back to those, that real genuine meeting, meaning that you find um, in the first chapter of the yeah. book of Genesis, um, mm. um, and that that it is, it is, um, I can use a theological word, a sin against God, a sin against the dignity of God, and uh, uh, a defacing of that beauty, which is God, and that beauty, which is God's creation, to, to neglect, to deny that dignity um, to um, a fellow human being. And um, that's, well, frankly, that's blasphemous. Um, um, uh, that may not be uh, uh, necessarily a, a term of international human rights law, um, um, but uh, but when when if if you believe that God creates us in His image, then you can't possibly do those things to 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 other human beings. Um, and has to be admitted that, that that some of the people who do that to other human beings are are other Christians. Um, the idea of Christianity um, 
that that we need a Christ, that we need a Messiah, that we need um, a Savior, uh, obviously has as a presupposition that there is something wrong, and that um, and that we fail and that we fall short. Um, um, and if I may quote um, Pope Francis, that the, the, the church should be an, a field hospital. Um, uh, we, we should recognize that, that, that Christians are not um, everything that they are called to be, um, and that, 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 they, that the healing of Christ, the redemption of Christ, needs to be brought to them, that those who already believe in him and everybody else. Um, so at one level, one shouldn't be surprised that there are Christians, that there are people who um, who fall short, and and you know, uh, I would I would be the first to 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 um, um, accuse myself of of not not always um, loving perfectly um, as as I'm called to do. I don't think I've committed any genocide recently, but um, uh, um, uh, but you know. Uh, we, we we all we all fall short. Um, oh, and to be aware to be aware of that is just so important, isn't it? To have an awareness of imperfection on your on your own part, and it's a great starting point. I love the fact that you've you've rolled that story out because I think that sort of I can understand why that resonates with you so much because you seem to me like an egalitarian. You seem to me that someone who is very gentle and very compassionate, as is you know you should be, but you have a particularly humane. Um, perspective on the world, and I get, I've got, I get this strong sense that you just want everybody to get on. Well, I, I, I certainly do want everybody to get on. Um, um, I, I want people to get on um, in honesty and in uh, and in a, a generally wanting the the good for effort for yeah. for their neighbour. I mean, that's what loving one's neighbour is wanting the um, wanting the good for them. Absolutely. Um, I am going to wrap up now because it's my wife's turn to in, indulge in Zoom and she has some work <laughs> to get on with as well. I could speak to you for 20 hours and um, I could, I've just found this conversation so fascinating. I thank you so much for, um, for getting, for, yeah, for being so open to it after all this time. And uh, we were only acquaintances at school, but it just, it's yeah. just been wonderful to catch up with you. No, I, I was thinking this is probably actually the longest conversation that, 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 we, that we've had. I don't know if we ever yeah. um, sat down at school and talked um, and talked just for um, uh, nearly, nearly two hours. Um, but, um, but thank you for uh, uh, asking me. It's been great to, to catch up. If you find yourself in Rome, um, uh, let me know. I dare say that's not going to be in the very near future, but um, uh, maybe one day it will be possible again and we can actually do this um, uh, in a less virtual and, uh, and more, more normal and more traditional way. <sighs> the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.